saddle again. Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. I am your host, Michael Lilienthal, and this is my co-host, Ethan Bartlett. Hi, I'm his co-host, Ethan Bartlett. You echo. Okay, whatever. We're Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch, but we are not in a room, and we don't have scotch. And we're not Michael or Ethan, actually. Oh, wait, no, that or we are, are we imposters? Would we know if we were imposters? That's the real question. That depends entirely on our programming. It does. It does depend entirely upon our programming. And I feel like I'm glitching enough that the, the chances are high. That yeah, I'm just yeah, a robot in disguise. Yeah. And I did just watch a Black Mirror episode about more or less that, so this is starting to legitimately terrify me. Did you watch a Black Mirror episode about that, or was that the sub-programming within your programming telling you that you were, in fact, a robot in disguise? I have had too much rum for this conversation. <laughs> Speaking of which, Ethan, what are you drinking? <laughs> well, Michael, I am drinking a cocktail known as the Dark and Stormy. Uh, I, the, the discerning listener who has been paying attention and keeping up like a like a good listener and not my mother would do um and also not my wife for that matter uh but the one who has been paying attention will note that this is what i was drinking last time and i have been drinking dark and stormy's low these two weeks or however long it's been i've lost track (laughs) Uh, and a dark and stormy is a very simple cocktail it's just a mostly a combination of dark rum um i'm using goslings uh very excellent dark Bermuda rum, and uh, just some ginger beer and, you know, ice, and I, I like to splash a little bit of lime in there. Uh, mm-hmm. but it's it's just a, a very nice cocktail. The the uh, darkness and the molassesy elements of the, the rum come out very nicely from all the, the spice of the ginger beer, and it's just all very easy, sort of dangerously easy, let us say, to uh, to just down very nice what are you Um, drinking similarly i'm drinking much the same that i drank last week it's a whiskey old-fashioned however i changed up the um uh the bitters that i'm uh that are incorporated in this uh this week uh it it is still using the uh vanguard whiskey from great northern distillery uh but i have uh some of angostura aromatic bitters in there a couple Mm. dashes of that as well as um, uh, about half a dropper's worth of blackstrap bitters, okay. which are like molasses and molasses. sarsaparilla and Ooh. other things in there. It's It goes down really smooth. It's really yeah. nice. I like this a I lot. Like uh, you, you seem to have developed quite the collection of bitters recently. Yes, uh, I was inspired to try some when my wife found a cocktail recipe for something that was very fall-esque. Okay. Um, and we needed some orange bitters for it. And uh-huh. I discovered this package of bitters, of a variety of bitters that included orange in it. And I said, I'm sure I'll find use for the rest of those. Oh, and yeah. so far the venture has been quite successful. That sounds very good. Is it a particular company's package or? Uh... Uh, all I know is that I bought it at Great Northern Distillery. Okay, okay, interesting. But it's not necessarily all their bitters. I don't think so. Uh, I know they use all these bitters. Uh, there are two different Jamaican bitters that they use that are okay. in this package as well. Um, I haven't been brave enough to try those yet, but I probably will at some point. Are they in, like, a little blue bottle with a dropper? Yeah. I think I had the Jamaican number two. Okay. If that's one of them. Yep. Like, I had a bottle of that for a while. And it, it was, you know, it was quite it was quite good. It was, uh, uh, it was sort of a sort of orange vanilla, as I recall. Mm. So anything you could use, like, an orange bitters in, you might have pretty good success swapping that one in, I would think. Sure. Um, but yeah, so welcome to Bitters Cast, where Michael and Ethan talk about bitters forever. 
Uh, no, we are not a bitters cast. This is, in fact, our second first paragraph special. And it's chaos and anarchy. It's the Purge 24-7 here at uh, Michael and Ethan headquarters. Yep. Um, if you look out the window, you can see a, a burning cityscape with uh, gutted buildings, mm-hmm. on-fire cars. Pretty sure that's Jerome's head on a stake over there that somebody somebody set up right outside our window. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh it's been staring at me this whole time and it's kind of creepy. Yep, 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 yep. So, but we're so, up here holed up with our alcohol and our bitters and, and our some books that we don't have the energy to read more than the first paragraph of. Yeah, on account of the whole the purge is happening all around us. Right. So, no rules, no rules for this podcast. Instead, we're just going to read the first paragraph of a couple of books and then talk about the whole book as if we read the whole book when, in fact, we just read the first paragraph. So, <laughs> Yeah. Um, which, which, again, as we mentioned last time, is sort of a theory that Michael and I have that um, you can get, at least in a well-crafted, good work of literature, you can get a miniature version of the whole just within that, that opening. Right. Um, and... We've we've decided for our for our special this month we're gonna just sort of test that theory out and I would say from last time it went it went pretty well yeah I think we got some pretty solid theories out there I think there are some English students in our listenership who could write some pretty solid papers based on what we said and so. as we said last time you know force their professor and their entire class to listen to it thus yes pumping our uh, our download counts and making us famous i guess yeah in fact if there are any english teachers listening to this podcast right now it would be really cool of you if you would assign your entire class to go on itunes and give us five stars yes that would be (laughs) excellent we would give you credit and you could then give the students just some of that credit yes some of it for yourself that'd be awesome awesome. yes (laughs) (laughs) well ethan did you bring a book to read the first paragraph of? Oh, wait. Crap. Oh, yeah. No, I did. I did. Oh, I prepared. Okay. Good, good. I was worried. For... I was too for a second there, but then I realized I have a book in my lap right here. Oh, good. That's um, handy. This book that I brought this month is Herman Melville's book, The Confidence Man. Ooh. Have you read this book, Michael? No, I haven't. I didn't think you had. Um, and like I said about, about Gravity's Rainbow last month, it's one I've read, but I know I need to reread at least once, and perhaps more than once. Um, it's, a, it's an odd little novel, but I think it's very much worth reading, and it's very profound in, in some unexpected ways, I guess I would say. So uh, I do enjoy this, this, uh, this dynamic here, where I've read it, and, and you haven't, Michael, so that we can get sort of both of those perspectives on things um and again mirroring last month uh i'm gonna read technically the first two paragraphs because um the first paragraph of this one is also very short it's just like one sort of average length sentence uh which for a book written you know in the in the 1850s i want to say 1840s um uh you know that's that's kind of odd. Like a lot of those Victorian novels, Victorian era novels, they they do go on in their first first uh, paragraph, um, such as the Anthony Trollope novel you introduced us to last month, which, as you said, had a page and a half long first paragraph. And once again, I am bringing that in as um, rationale for reading these first two paragraphs instead of just the first one because you subjected us to that. Yeah. Um, and I am going to milk my revenge on that matter as far as, as far as, you know, till that crowd dries <laughs> as up. As far as you can go. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So here we go. Uh, this is The Confidence Man by Herman Melville. Chapter one. A mute goes aboard a boat on the Mississippi. At sunrise on a 1st of April, there appeared suddenly as Manco Capac at the Lake Titicaca, a man in cream colors at the waterside in the city of St. Louis. His cheek was fair, his chin downy, his hair flaxen, his hat a white fur one with a long fleecy nap. He had neither trunk, valise, carpet bag, nor parcel. 
No porter followed him. He was unaccompanied by friends. From the shrugged shoulders, titters, whispers, wonderings of the crowd, it was plain that he was, in the extremest sense of the word, a stranger. So, Michael, just from, uh, you know, knowing the title, having heard the, the chapter title, and then just having heard that text that I read, what do you got for me? It's interesting. It's interesting. Okay, so the confidence man, we're expecting somebody, we're expecting a con man to come in. Uh, I, you know, it, immediately what I'm thinking is like the music man, so to speak. Right. I'm not, I'm going to not say so to speak for the rest of this episode. Uh, <laughs> okay. I'll think of some punishments for you if you do. If I do. All right. Uh, so I'm thinking of somebody coming in to con people in some location. Yeah. Uh, and so we're introduced to an individual in this first paragraph or first two paragraphs. And what strikes me immediately is the absence of things. He comes in with not this, not that, not whatever else. He comes in not carrying different things, which makes him all the more interesting, not having certain things, which marks him as a stranger here. Right. Interestingly, uh, he does stand out. He right. is an alien to this location and I don't have an opinion about this character yet, which uh -huh. is interesting, I, which may be part of the intention. I don't know whether he's a good guy or a bad guy. You know, the, the book is The Confidence Man. I don't know if this is The Confidence Man. I strongly suspect it is. Right. But even still, I don't know whether I'm on his side or not. Right. Just by virtue of him being the first character I meet in the book, I'm immediately on his side. He's the first character right. I know of. But I don't know if he's actually good or not, which is kind of a con man thing. <laughs> right, exactly. And, you know, a lot of people think of, of con men as, oh, they want to blend in. They want to, uh, you know, not attract attention. Um, and that's really not the case. You know, yeah. a pickpocket would want to blend in um a spy would want to blend in a con man wants you to look at him but he wants you to look at what he wants you to look at right um, and so by eschewing so all of these different distractions that would make him blend in perhaps he is calling attention to something about him that he wants people to notice yes and even just the idea of him being a stranger, right? we as the reader are also strangers to wherever we're coming in this right. book. And so that kind of allies us with him, making us the conned. In this <laughs> or the book. con artist. Or the con artist. Yeah. Um, it, it always makes me think of, uh, I think it's supposedly Tolstoy who said, that there are only two types of stories. Either a man goes on a journey or a stranger comes to town. Mm. Um, and this is, you can see this, you know, it, it gets more explicit later in the text, but you can even see in these first paragraphs uh, the boat that he's going towards, um, which in the first line of the next paragraph, like the very next thing I would have read if I had continued reading, the boat is called the Fidel. Um, oh... <laughs> right that uh, oh, herman melville you suck right um do you want to explain to the uh perhaps only english-speaking listener what what why herman melville sucks in this case yes because fidel is related to the greek word fides or faith um or that's not the greek that's latin um yeah i, I speak so many languages i get them all confused <laughs> <laughs> um, i can't tell if that's a humble brag or just a brag that is self-defeating but <laughs> one one or the other <laughs> or both or both at the same time so <laughs> this so that that would mark whoever comes in on that ship as someone you can trust someone faithful somebody you can rely on um yeah. somebody you can believe in and if it's about a con man, intrinsically, somebody who's a con man is 
unreliable. Yeah. But who presents himself as somebody reliable. Or or so, someone you can have confidence in. You can or draw that. You can have confidence in. Exactly. That linguistic line between, you know, Fidel Fides, um fidelity yep. Yep. confidence. Yep. It's it's uh it's you know, it's related it's, there. Close overlap. So um but that's us cheating because we did go into now the second or the, even the third paragraph, but I think you um, cheated. I know. But what I was what's starting to say is, you know, this is uh this is very much a stranger comes to town story, right? Like you get the sense that there is a community here that that um uh you know this this community or this this group at the waterside is there's an in-group and then there's the man that we've been introduced to. You get that that right away. And so it's very much this idea of the stranger comes to town, which if you're looking for sort of, you know, extra extra textual references in a sense makes gives him sort of jesusy connotations right yeah well anytime and i'll say this anytime there is that sort of stranger comes to town story i'm yeah. immediately thinking incarnation um, yeah either and, the, and, the... And, and and still that's that's leaving judgment out of it because it can be a positive christ figure incarnation or it can be an inverted vampire figure incarnation exactly yeah which happens in say dracula when dracula comes to london right so yeah so uh but it's interesting that word stranger is like dropped right at the end of that paragraph yeah. like, a, like a weight like an anchor right um, which which immediately causes you to judge him either as somebody who doesn't belong here and therefore should get out or it causes you to side with him against this judgmental town that labels him as a stranger and will see him as nothing but a stranger. Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay, I'm going to cheat again. <clears throat> so we're having this conversation, right? And I'm going to, what I'm going to do, I'm going to read the, the last sentence that I read before and then the first sentence of the following paragraph, technically the third. From the shrugged shoulders, titters, whispers, wonderings of the crowd, it was plain that he was, in the extremest sense of the word, a stranger. In the same moment with his advent... Oh, come on, Herman Melville, you suck! Oh. And that's when you get, in the same moment with his advent, he stepped aboard the favorite steamer, Fidel, on the point of starting for New Orleans. So, the placement of stranger and advent, I'm suddenly thinking... That's not an accident. Yeah. Freaking Herman Melville. Right. Uh, okay, so here's what I'm thinking. Because it's so obvious within the first page or two of this book uh -huh. that Stranger and Advent are put side by side, he is intentionally causing it to seem as a Christ figure and therefore turning him into a vampire figure. Sure, which, you know, the, the idea... Good job exploiting uh, the lack of rules, by the way. Yes, um, I'm going to exploit this rule, especially when it's so freaking obvious. Yeah, yeah. You know, now that now that we say this, I'm tempted to uh, pick this book some month, um, <laughs> purely for the the uh, um, evil pleasure I will get watching From you. What talk I'm not allowed to say. Saying vampires, and you know, but it is a good point. Like that's what a con man is. You know, yeah. he's a He's really he's a vampire. He you know he in in literally every sense except the ones that you know draw from any kind of supernatural uh, element. Like a con man is a vampire. Right. No, it's absolutely true. <laughs> now the the one other thing that I would like to point out about um, this opening, uh, and this this didn't this slipped right past me on my first read, and it's only occurring to me on this reread or, or did as I was sort of picking books for this episode. Right. Mm -hmm. um, at sunrise on a first of April. So April. this book takes place on April fool's day. When did April fool's day become a thing? Um, that is a really valid question. Uh, because that... like, I, I wouldn't put it past it to be that old, but I wonder what form it took that long ago well um let's see history.com <laughs> 
says 1700 apparently oh yeah so yeah and that's thing yeah the thing by the Uh, time herman melville was writing right if history.com is to be believed Although so, some historians speculate uh, that April Fool's Day dates back to 1582 when France switched from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar, which oh, uh, I have okay. heard of. I have heard of that fact that um, April Fool's Day, April 1st, used to be the first day of the year, but then it switched. Okay. And like the first day of the year, people used to exchange gifts. And so when April 1st was no longer the first day of the year, people would offer gifts but they would be like empty or they would have sure. prank gifts inside like a pile of poop. Sure. Um, um, I was actually uh, uh, just looking at another source that drew it back actually as far as Canterbury Tales, okay. that there may be a reference to April 1st being a day of pranks in the Canterbury Tales, which would be in the 1300s, you know, that's that, um, you know, if not like you couldn't necessarily say, April Fool's Day as April 1st goes back that far, but maybe it developed out of that tradition, which obviously would be an even older uh, tradition. So yeah. I think I do think um, that we're uh, pretty safe at this point in assuming that by the 1850s, it was probably a unknown entity, something that Melville could have done on purpose. And, yeah. Uh, um, so, yeah, point being it. that it's probably intentionally an April Fool's joke that Norman yes. Melville is writing into his book. And as I remember, the book does take place just over day. Um, oh, makes it even worse. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Uh, oh, okay. Well, the, the edition I have of this book, which is uh, trying to see when it was printed quick. Printed in 1950. Oh, the the afterword for it was printed in 1964 or written in 1964. Um, it's an old Signet Classic edition, right? Ah. So flipping to the afterwards or the afterword rather, um, the action of this most deceptive and carefully composed of Melville's novels takes place on the first of April between dawn and midnight on the Feast of All Fools. Um, and by a startling coincidence, the book was published on the 1st of April in the year 1857. <laughs> um, See, I feel so, like that coincidence is only half coincidence, and also the right. publisher was like, what if we published it on April Fool's Day? Wouldn't that be yeah, great? You gotta think that, and I do think that's further corroboration that at least the literature professor in the 60s who wrote the afterwards does seem to think that you know, Melville would have intended that April Fool's reference. Yeah. So So that's fascinating. So, like, I I don't know if I want to ask you any questions because you've read it before and I want to read it now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, I feel like we've discussed it pretty thoroughly. I was just going to ask if you had any final thoughts. I don't, except that I want to read it now to find out whether this con man is a bad guy or a good guy as that is understood in literature right frankly i what i do remember from reading it is that you might be asking this question just as much if not more so by the end of the book i can't say i'm too surprised by that yeah and also i do feel like that i've just made you want to read it even more yes you have you have definitely (laughs) so add that one to the list (laughs) well i'm two for two so far in these specials good good (laughs) All right. Well, the book I have brought is a book that I certainly have not read and I know virtually nothing about. Um, okay. And I, I'm guessing just from what I know of you that you probably know maybe slightly more than I do. Maybe, if anything. Okay. Um, but perhaps even less than I. The book I'm bringing is a book that I do not have a physical copy of. I just went online and searched for the mo- most popular books right now. Okay. On Google. And... So I, I will break in here to say I almost certainly have not read it because my current reading list has a four-year delay on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm now reading all of the stuff that was bestsellers and top of top ten lists in like 2013. So. Sure. Sure. Um, so this book, 
which is popular right now. And I did catch a glimpse when I searched on Google that apparently this is now being turned into a movie with Nicole Kidman starring. Okay. Um, so keep a lookout for that, I guess. The book is called The Silent Wife by okay. A.S.A. Harrison. Huh. Um, and I'm going to cheat a little bit backwards from what you did. Um, if you look at the table of contents, um, part one is called Her and Him. Okay. Uh, part two is called Her. And there are okay. 28 chapters in part one, which is called Her and Him. And the chapters alternate her, him, her, okay. him, and so forth. Um, from what I see on this digital copy of the table of contents, it, there are just two parts. Uh, okay. Her and him, and then her. So the silent wife. So take that as you will. So uh, this first paragraph comes from chapter one called Her. Okay. <clears throat> it's early September. Jody Brett is in her kitchen making dinner. Thanks to the open plan of the condo, she has an unobstructed view through the living room to its east-facing windows and beyond to a vista of lake and sky cast by the evening light in a uniform blue. A thinly drawn line of a darker hue, the horizon, appears very near at hand, almost touchable. She likes this delineating arc, the feeling it gives her of being encircled. The sense of containment is what she loves most about living her in her airy on the 27th floor. And that is paragraph one. Okay. What are your immediate thoughts? Uh, it's interesting, uh, obviously. Um, yes. <laughs> now, there, you know, I'm going to speak a little bit out my butt here in a couple ways. Um, because a lot of between you having having briefed me on like the uh, the uh, what what you can glean from the table of contents um, as well as the title um, recalls a lot of like the tradition of feminist literature to me like, you know yes Virginia Woolf Sylvia Plath sort of echo through a lot of what we've said so far. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and I'm, I'm talking out my butt, A, because I am, you know, part of the uh, the white male patri patriarchal oppressors. Mm -hmm. um, and B, because I'm, I, you know, I've read some, I've read some Sylvia Plath, I've read some Virginia Woolf, but not a lot of either of them or not, a, you know, not as much as I certainly should have in um, the tradition of feminist literature. I, I probably almost am more familiar with like victorian era and like early 20th century like the suffragette literature and mm -hmm. um the the new woman writers they were called in the, in the victorian era um so that said you know that that does build in sort of a certain set of expectations here um mm -hmm. and you know even just knowing the title of the book and the, the her and him and even the, this chapter just being called her all of all of that implies this this sort of um uh yin yang or or a symmetrical you know man woman dichotomy husband wife dichotomy which you know obviously if you were going to trace that through literature you'd have volumes and volumes in, in your in your theoretical work of criticism right mm -hmm. um so the fact that if i you know, listened correctly and, and heard everything um, that that really isn't mentioned directly in this first paragraph. Right. That right. is interesting to me. Yeah. Um, the other thing that, that jumped out at me right away is the focus on, on light and different types of, of light and, and, you know, the play of light um, almost like a, and I, you know, obviously have no idea if if there's any kind of literary through line or intention here, but but almost like a reversal of some of the stuff you said about Gravity's Rainbow, mm -hmm. um, that the opening focuses so heavily on darkness and not being able to see. Um, so that's interesting. And then the third thing is is that that evocative last phrase. I believe it was from her airy on the on the twenty seventh floor. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that idea of that, that word airy, um, if, if I'm, you know, recalling my words correctly <laughs> is like a hawk's nest or something, right? Like, like a, a dwelling sort of far up a cliff or something that a bird of prey would, would camp out in. Um, and, you know, there's, there's an interesting tension, um, you know, that, that idea is almost one of freedom, right? You're a bird of prey. You, you have this, this retreat you can go to in the air. The fact that she's sort of peering out of it and the fact that, that, you know, her world almost is this, this place on the 27th floor, mm-hmm. there's a very constricted feeling at the same time. Yeah. That was something that, uh, that I noticed about this. Um, <laughs> There's there's that interesting dual metaphor um, with what you noticed the airy uh, and then the sea or the lake I think um, that uh, that appears so this this water with, where you can see the horizon um, yeah and and also the airy where there's this bird uh, what I immediately was thinking of and you pointing out feminist literature and especially like suffragette literature. Um, <laughs> Well, really what was coming out to me was when I, in high school, in an, in a high school English class, read the book The Awakening by Kate Chopin, or Chopin, right. I'm not sure, um, right. and how that book ends is with the heroine drowning herself in the sea. Okay. But on the cover, it's a dress form. Uh, where the torso of this dress form is a bird cage. Oh, uh, okay. Um, and I can't remember if that's actually borne out by any image in the book itself, uh-huh. Uh-huh. but just that dual image of the sea or the ocean or this body of water where you can see the horizon and yeah. the bird cage. Right. Uh, and I remember when we discussed that in class that the ocean was a symbol of freedom. That right. she was escaping and in the only way that she knew how to escape by walking out into the sea until she drowned. Okay, um, sure. And that was and, a symbol of, of freedom and um, sure. uh, emancipation, so to speak. And I do know oh, that there's... I said so to speak again. Oh! Um. <laughs> anyway, you were going to say something. Oh, I, I forgot. Think of something. Um... <laughs> Uh, yeah, and, and I do know enough to know that there is, in feminist literature, this, this repeated image that comes up, you know, multiple times over multiple eras of, like, women and wives in particular as, like, caged birds, right? The, yeah. The wife, especially in the Victorian era and in, in sort of some of the, the values from the Victorian era that, that held over into the 20th century, um, the wife is like at home and in the kitchen and, and, you know, she's, she's in, in this very sort of caged thing and she's beautiful. So it's like this idea of, you know, come, come home and, and see my, my beautiful caged creature that I have, that I keep. Mm-hmm. Here. Um, yeah. And a lot of that I think does echo through the airy uh, image and, and some of the other images in this, in this opening paragraph. Right. What's interesting to me, though, is that she likes this. Whoever this character is, this Jody Brett, she uh, likes it. Right. Uh, it, it says that explicitly. She likes this delineating arc. She likes this feeling of being encircled. She likes right. this sense of containment. Um, right. She, she enjoys being kept... Um, which is fascinating. So it, it marks yeah. her as very much not a feminist. Um, she she is someone who enjoys being not freed, so to speak. God. At least not a sort of a traditional feminist or like an old fashioned. Right. You know, not what you would think of as a feminist based on books yeah. like The Awakening by Kate Chopin. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, so if we were going to make some predictions about what what the rest of this book is maybe like um one of the obvious ones i'm gonna i'm thinking of is is that it's maybe interrogating that that dichotomy what is freedom what is um 
you know, the lack of freedom, what, you know, is freedom sort of the highest ideal or is it worth mm -hmm. trading some of it away to gain something else that maybe you want? Um, yeah. And then that, yeah. that split is very interesting. The, the uh, him and her, and then in part two, just being her. Mm -hmm. um, and it makes me wonder if some, some event, per, perhaps his death, perhaps a divorce of some kind, um, I guess, I don't know what different kinds of divorce there are. I don't know why I said some kind, but anyway. <laughs> you know, there could be a separation, too. It could be, I suppose. But anyways, seems like maybe he falls out of her life somehow. Mm -hmm. um, you Even know, this, just this opening is, is setting us Yeah. Like, there's some kind of separation. It makes me wonder if they're, we're going to interrogate that, you know, the idea of uh, defining yourself against someone else you're part of a two-part thing mm -hmm. um versus just having that taken away or abandoning it and then having to figure out who you are just as an individual whether you you know presumably whether you like to do that or not yes um something interesting that sticks out to me you notice that uh, that dichotomy that back and forth of her him her him her him throughout the 28 chapters of part one um yeah and I expect, uh, if this is well constructed, that what what we expect, first of all, is an opposition between the two, and then it's going right. to play with that opposition, especially based on this first paragraph where it completely inverts the idea of freedom being of any value. Yes. Um, that now it's going to play with that, and it's not going to be a clear opposition throughout especially part sure. one here we're going to see some back yeah. and forth where um you know the hymn chapters really are some of the glowing ones i'm expecting yeah um, that um at, at least in our social opinion um another interesting thing is uh at least in this table of contents and i'm not going to assume that this google preview table of contents is ex exhaustive uh, but I really don't have any reason to think that it's not. Uh, we have her and him, and then we have her, which seems unbalanced toward her, right? Yeah. However, yeah. the title of the book is The Silent Wife. Right. Which balances it away from her, <laughs> in a way. Right. Um, sense, yeah. and, and so it, it's it, it's about her, but from an external perspective she's silent we don't hear her from the title of the book but then within the book we get her perspective more than we get his perspective so ultimately right. in the end we do get a balance in some sense yeah then the further thing i'm noticing here uh and i cheated a little bit uh the author is asa harrison mm -hmm. and immediately when i come across an author whose first name is an initial, I want to uh -huh. know who that author is. And I looked it up. This is a female uh -huh. author, and I can't say I'm surprised by that with a title called The right. Silent Wife. Um, right. Not putting any negative spin on that. Just I, I can't be surprised that this is a female author when it's talking about The Silent Wife, um, right. somebody who's actually equipped to do that. I mean, think if this book were by a male author and it were called The Silent Wife, it wouldn't be on the most popular books of this moment. Um, yeah, but, seems, uh, that seems fair. But that idea also that this female author has chosen to publicize herself with initials goes into a tradition of female authors publicizing themselves by initials because if they tried to sell themselves, I phrased that poorly, uh, if they tried to sell <laughs> sell their work, um, uh, under their names, which are feminine names, they would right. not sell as well. And, and so it seems... selling it under the initials makes it more saleable, which itself is a commentary on this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting, too. Well, I think we've officially, now that we're analyzing the author's use of initials, I suspect we have plumbed the depths of what we can get without... <laughs> reading this further but uh i do, i will say i do want to read the rest of this book now 
I am interested too. Honestly, when I came across the book, I was like, all right, the most popular book of the moment. Maybe I'm interested. Maybe I'm not. Uh, I've yeah. got so many other books that I probably would rather read. But really, after reading that first right. paragraph and talking about it, I'm intrigued. Yeah, yeah, me too. That was a really interesting idea on your part, I think, to just uh, just throw that one at us, see what we can do. Sure. Um, yeah. Do you have any other thoughts on, on it that you want to get out there? That's all I have at the moment. Me too. So. All right. Well. I guess it's my turn. It's your turn to... to uh, suffer greatly. Now, I did uh, just randomly pick myself a McGonagall poem. All right. Unless, which I'll do unless you feel that you want to pick one for me. No, that sounds good. All right. Um, so, gentle listener, uh, to fill you in in case you haven't been paying attention or, or have forgotten in the last however long it's been, uh, we've, we're instituting a new feature um, at least for these these uh, chaos, no rules, anarchy specials, um, which actually we've been trying to come up with a name for for these specials other than first paragraph special, and I'm suddenly thinking chaos, no rules, anarchy special might might uh, <laughs> get us some downloads. Um, so, gentle listener, we we've decided that uh, William McGonagall, the uh, often considered the worst poet in the English language, must be celebrated. Um, and by celebrated, I mean Michael and I are masochists, and we're going to take turns trying to read poems of his and get as far as we can in them without breaking, without laughing. So Michael went last month. You can hear his wonderful performance that I ruined for him um, on that episode. Yes. Uh and so what I just did, I went to the beautiful website McGonagall Online, which is McGonagall-Online.org, and it's just a wonderful celebration of, again, what most scholars agree is the worst poet in the English language. So I went onto that website. They have all of his poems just, you know, in, a, in one section in a list form. And I just scrolled through, looked away, and just, you know, hit a, hit a poem with my finger um, while not looking. And, and uh, just decided I would read whatever poem that was. And the poem turns, turns out to be, Lines in reply to the beautiful poet who welcomed news of McGonagall's departure from Dundee. That is the title of this poem. Lines in reply to the beautiful poet who welcomed news of McGonagall's departure from Dundee. Um, so here we go. Dear Johnny, I return my thanks to you, but more than thanks is your due for publishing the scurrilous poetry about me leaving the ancient city of Dundee. The rhymester says, we'll weary for your Scotland form, but if I'm not mistaken, I've seen bonnier than his in a field of corn. And as I venture to say, and really suppose, this <laughs> 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 form seen in a cornfield would frighten the crows. <laughs> Uh, so, so, that's so bad. <laughs> and I will say, I got through two stanzas of that. Well, almost two. I, I finished off the last one after I left. Oh. So essentially, two stanzas of that of that poem. There were only six stanzas in that poem. Oh, okay. Not bad. Really Sort of hoping I might muddle through, but you might be able to finish. But no, no, not at all. Not even half. See, you gotta wonder if William McGonagall just did it on purpose. You do have to wonder that at a certain point. But I do remember one of our English professors in college, you know, saying that there have been McGonagall like imitation contests. Oh. And that, like, no one can be quite as bad as he could. Like, Which you never. Means he was a genius. <laughs> or he was just the worst. I, I just have to think myself that only someone sincerely trying and with no, like, like outside perspective, like, completely unable to achieve 
perspective on their own work. I but sincerely trying. I think that's the only type of person who could write the poetry that he did. I think you're correct. I think, <laughs> I think it can't be anything but. Yeah, yeah. It's just so bad. And if we're not careful, I feel like we're going to now turn into a McGonagall analysis cast. <laughs> yes. All right. Which might not be. <laughs> I was going to say it might not be the least entertaining thing, but it would be awful for our mental health eventually. It would be. It would be. All right. So yeah. thank you for listening, gentle listener. Uh, if you like what we do here uh, at Michael and Ethan in Room with Scotch, uh, hopefully we will survive this revolt that is going on uh, around the base of the building that houses uh, the Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch headquarters. Um, but, uh, in the meantime, please review us on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Podcast Addict, on Podknife, on anywhere you get your podcasts. Hopefully we're there. If we are not there, let us know and we'll get there. Um, and you can, uh, if you do want to let us know or just otherwise interact with us, look up the Tapestry Radio Network Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have just a network-wide page. There is a Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch page. There is also the Tapestry Radio Tap House, which is our private group. Yes. Uh, Join that group. You know, chat it, with us personally, and we'll be there. We, uh, yeah. Yeah, we, we do. You know, uh, I check Facebook an embarrassing number of times every day. So um, <laughs> that's, I should hopefully, you know, if I see it, I'll reply to it you know without without a doubt like i'm always happy to uh happy to do that yes um, um and also listen to our other shows on the tapestry radio network uh the shows such as intermission our drama podcast uh which will have new episodes at some point in the very near future which is yeah. yes a subjective amount of time <laughs> Uh, and Roll to Amble, the Dungeons and Dragons real play uh, podcast, and Pokemon Rollout, the Pokemon Tabletop United real play podcast. Uh, check those shows out. Uh, let us know what you think about all those shows. Let the casts of each of those shows know what you think. And uh, yeah, uh, otherwise, we will soon be discussing the book The House of Special Purpose by John Boyne. So. Um, read along with us on that book and let us know what you think about that. And if you let us know before we record that episode, we will discuss your feedback on that episode yeah. uh, in person. So, good thumbs up there for the that's, that's my thumbs gentle up. listener to, to see. Yep. You know, um, it, body language is 90% of communication. Yeah, which is a very important thing to remember in a completely audio medium such as podcasting. Yep. So everybody should pay attention to all of the body language that I put out throughout this entire podcast, uh, which really kind of sends a strong undercurrent throughout everything else that I said in this podcast, everything that Ethan said throughout this podcast. Uh, you really all won't the, understand anything that either of us said without that body language. So all no. the eye rolling that you did while I was talking really just uh, adds another layer to. Honestly, it's it's Honestly, essential. It's... <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you for listening, and gentle listener. Until our next episode, we'll talk to you later. Love you. We love you.
obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener, obviated objects of oblivion obambulating about, offered unto you in the Tapestry Radio Network. TapestryRadio.org, from our fancy to yours. Thank you.